Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama these aren't illegal immigrants. Uh, 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 Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Hello and happy State of the Union week. You're listening to 2020 Vision, the United States Study Center's weekly look at the 2020 US presidential election and the big issues dominating the campaign. I'm Drew Sheldrick, and this week I'm joined by Professor Simon Jackman, the CEO of the United States Study Centre. Simon was a Professor of Political Science and Statistics at Stanford University for two decades, and is known for his work on public opinion and poll averaging, having partnered with the Huffington Post during the 2012 US presidential election and The Guardian Australia for the 2013 Australian federal election on their pre-polling election analysis. We'll be talking voter suppression and so-called partisan gerrymandering in 2020, but before we do, let's hear a bit of what President Trump had to say in the State of the Union this week. Members of Congress, the state of our union is strong. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. Most of the people in this room voted for a wall. But the proper wall never got built. I will get it built. Don't sit yet. You're going to like this. We also have more women serving in Congress than at any time before. not been elected president of the United States, we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea. Chairman Kim and I will meet again on February 27th and 28th in Vietnam. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you very much. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Um, initial thoughts on President Trump's State of the Union speech. Any surprises there, do you think? Um, for me, it was a way more conventionally presidential speech than, and one of the more conventional-sounding speeches I've ever heard Trump give, frankly. Uh, 90 minutes, uh, a ton of content. I uh, covered an awful lot of ground in those 90 minutes. Uh, but I, I just keep coming back to <laughs> the raw audacity of Donald Trump to be in the political circumstances he is in, mm -hmm. having just only, you know, a week or so ago recovered from the, the government shutdown and having indeed the state of the union speech uh, delayed by the Democrats, yes. you'd have no sense that he was, you know, battling politically with an approval rating, you know, in, in the struggling to break 40. It was, it was, a, it was a speech that projected strength and a real vision for the United States. And, and under the circumstances, I actually think it was a pretty important 
uh, tactic uh, for, for Trump to, to, to go to at this particular point in his presidency. You recently returned from Washington, D.C. yourself. Um, you were there sort of around the U.S. government um, sort of shut down and sort of when it ended. What was the mood like in D.C. after such a turbulent month? It was, it was a little odd. Um, there's just a ton of fatigue. Like Trump <laughs> and, and the pace of the stories for, for journalists, for people in the diplomatic corps, for people in the think tank community, uh, business community and lobbyists, everybody in D.C., there's, a, there's an exhaustion uh, and a fatigue of some... And, and with that, a desensitisation of sorts as well, by the way, um, but also I think an understanding that maybe something had changed, that, that Trump was now weaker than he'd ever been at any point in his presidency given the politics around the shutdown and, uh, and the way that he, he, he kind of he was taught a lesson by Nancy Pelosi uh, and, and that was perhaps uh, a real a real takeout. But, but those two things were unmistakable. Um, uh, one is just this, just this relentless pace of, of stories and scandal and, and re- reacting to things that Trump has treated us all to, frankly, not just Washington, D.C. Uh, you were also part of a panel while you were there alongside former U.S. Director of National Intelligence Jim Clapper and Australian Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. The event was looking at uh, U.S.-Australian uh, cooperation in the Indo-Pacific region. Was there a, a common view there among the panel about whether the U.S. was committed to a lasting presence in this region? Yeah, look, on that... Um, I think one of the things everybody keeps coming back to is that in the official doctrinal statements of American policy at the moment, um, the Indo-Pacific figures prominently, as does a return to strategic competition between great powers, where where we've gone from fighting terrorism, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency in the Middle East being the big priorities of the United States government for the last, from 9-11 to 2018. 2018 represented an official break with that and an understanding that the rise of China uh, merits a whole-of-government response from the United States and one that Australia was certainly, a signal Australia was certainly looking for with respect to uh, America's uh, China policy. So that is unmistakable. The, The other thing that's unmistakable, and this has been something I've picked up on a couple of visits to Washington over the last 12 months, is that what you are seeing out of the United States with respect to China now is not Trump-specific. We, the way it's being played out and the particular policy moves and announcements are Trump-specific, but the strategic mind shift, if you will, the mindset that's now apparent in, in Washington is, is across the board. Um, um, one phrase I heard, and I think there's a slight exaggeration, China doesn't have a friend left in, in the United States. I, right. think that, I think that's overstating it. And as Jim Clapper said in our public session, we're not quite back to a Cold War um, yet, is what he said. But I think it is not Trump-specific. It's important for Australians to understand that. If Hillary Clinton had become president, yes. we'd have a robust China policy. If some other Republican had won, we'd have a robust China policy. We will have a robust China policy out of the United States if, if, an, if Trump is not president after 2020. It's really important that uh, Australians understand that. And I think the question, though, getting back to your question, is to what extent is the United States willing to spend the money uh, 
it takes to sustain a very forward strategic posture um, with respect to China, both in conventional ways that the United States uh, spends money on its military, on, but also in the, all the other things. Okay, let's move on to your pet subject. So your expertise as well as polling and public opinion centres on political participation and electoral systems. Uh, one issue that's going to remain hotly contested and quite controversial in the lead up to the 2020 election is so-called partisan gerrymandering. For listeners who are not perhaps familiar with that term or concept. Can you explain it for me? Sure. So partisan gerrymandering uh, in particular is the drawing of, of district boundaries for, for elections uh, to a legislative body. We have parliaments here. They have uh, Congress in the United States, for instance. But when you draw the lines on the map to break up a state into uh, districts, are you doing that in a way that gives one party an advantage over another? And, and the, perhaps the easiest way to think about this is this great phrase called packing and cracking. So packing, if I'm, if I'm the partisan gerrymanderer, as it were, I take your voters and I recognise, ah, oh, statewide, Drews can command about 52, 53% of the vote statewide. What I will do, clever me, is lock up his vote in just two or three districts right. where your representatives of your party win by comfortable margins, right? So you're your majority of statewide vote share is locked up in just a, a few districts, whereas my minority of statewide support, I get to spread that around. And so in North Carolina, for instance, you can have the Republican Party losing pretty comfortably statewide, uh, you know, 52-48 to the Democrats, say, 53-47 even. But still, because of the way the Republicans have drawn the lines, they win 10 seats out of, the, out of North Carolina's 13 right. seats. Right. And so doing that deliberately with partisan intent and using all the tools at our disposal these days with good demographic data, computer, map drawing software, GIS, all that stuff. That's the modern face of partisan gerrymandering. Right. How does that differ to, say, redistricting or um, changing seats within an Australian context? So how do we do it here? It's a great, it's a great point you bring up. Um, in the United States, in a number of jurisdictions, a number of states, the politicians themselves control the process. Right. So the state legislature, for instance, in North Carolina, um, signs off on a redistricting plan for, for that state. And which, whichever party has a majority in that state legislature typically draws the lines to suit themselves. Indeed, they draw their own lines, first of all, <laughs> and, then, and then they draw uh, congressional boundaries. And often if you've, you've got a governor of the same party as you, uh, the thing goes into law and it's a bit of a lay down for one side of politics uh, over another. That doesn't hold everywhere in the United States. A few states have done what we do in Australia and have independent commissions do it. And the good news about Australian electoral redistricting is that those independent commissions really are, for the most part, it would seem operationally, do have a lot of independence. Australian political parties from about the early 80s onwards have tended to unilaterally disarm to sort of a mutual non-aggression pact that we will not exploit election machinery and election administration in a right. partisan way. And that has held in Australia, I think, for the most part. And quantitatively, when we analyse Australian uh, redistricting plans alongside American redistricting plans, there's really no comparison. Um, we, d we never see in Australia, at least in the, in the last 20, 30, 40 years, anything as egregious as what we're seeing 
out of some of these American jurisdictions where there is partisan control of the redistricting process. Uh, In the last few years, you've served as an expert witness for plaintiffs in two US federal court cases um, on this particular issue, including the first successful challenge to partisan gerrymandering um, um, in the US in in decades. Um, These landmark cases are now before the US Supreme Court. So, I mean, what was that experience like for you? You're a boy from Brisbane, you're suddenly (laughs) weighing into, you know, how America conducts its elections. What was that like? Yeah, no. um, So it was... was, um, Incredible burden uh, you feel on on your shoulders. Number one, Um, um, I remember the North Carolina trial in particular. At the start of the trial, um, I was in. You're in court, right? You're going to be an expert witness in open court. So I'm sitting in the back of the courtroom on the first morning, and it's a three judge panel. Right, uh, the three judges presiding, and um, and the and the and the lead judge. Uh, basically says, look, um, we can dispense with all the preliminaries. This is going to turn on what the experts tell us is going on and what they would propose as a definition of partisan gerrymandering and all the rest of it. No pressure. No, exactly. (laughs) And and all the heads just swivel back and and particularly from the, the plaintiffs who just look and you realise, oh, wow, not much at stake here, just Mm -hmm. (laughs) the fairness of American elections. Um, It's a big deal because... um, uh, it raises constitutional questions. The Supreme Court of the United States has said, yeah, partisan gerrymandering is a constitutional question. There's something here for us to mull over, but we don't quite know how to proceed. We need cases to come up to us that lay out a clear set of facts, a clear diagnosis, and even remedies that allow us to deal with this. We can't just deal with it in an ad hoc, one-off way. We need a standard that is clear and and can give clear guidance to all the American jurisdictions uh, that that still have uh, partisan control of redistricting, and and that's a big hill to climb. Yeah. And and the, you're realizing you're getting this is a one and once in a generation opportunity. And um, so it's enormously uh, weighty. At, on the one hand, um, on the other hand, it, it just felt awesome in that um, you were given this opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. to to um, make a contribution. I am a U.S. citizen. Um, I, I lived, you know, more of my life, not just my adult life, but more of my life life uh, in the United States and in Australia. And to have this opportunity to bring my professional training and expertise and skill. Yeah. And then finally the last bit, sort of advocacy, if you will, that, that being able to deliver it orally in open court, um, it just felt like this is... This is major leagues. Like this is every you know, a lot has been leading up to this moment. You know, sort of decades of my own scholarly attention to this problem. And then the other thing I have to, in answering your question, I can't let this go. Um, the team I was with were just magnificent, including an Australian woman, yes, yeah. who's a graduate of the University of Sydney, uh, Ruth Greenwood. Um, she has a law degree from here. And, um, and like me, she's now a, a dual uh, national. She's a U.S. citizen. And, and, and she kind of knew about me. I think the Australian connection did help as to how I, I, I came to be part of the team, to, to be frank about it. Yeah. But they're not just, there's not one Aussie, but two Aussies um, helping uh, lead this fight uh, in the United States. And um, we're... You know, the basic fairness of elections is not a settled matter. It, it's a fight that that goes on in, in 2018 and 2019. 
as well as partisan gerrymandering or, or, or perhaps within it, there, there's also been battles over accusations of racial gerrymandering in the United States over the years. Am I right in thinking that that's a little easier for courts to strike down these kind of um, attempted changes? Yeah, well, it, it, if anything, it goes the other way. Sometimes courts want racial gerrymandering right. um, in order to comply with some of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act that that um, that minorities have the ability to elect uh candidates of colour. And so it's interesting. So courts have taken a different view on that. But what was really, to to partisan gerrymandering, they'll they'll tolerate sort of weird looking boundaries, shall we say, uh, in order for a state to comply with the Voting Rights Act. Um, What was interesting about the North Carolina plan is that its plan, the state's plan, the Republicans' plan, had been thrown out for being a, a racial gerrymander, um, and and then they came back with a slightly amended plan and said, no, 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 this is not a racial gerrymander, this is a partisan gerrymander, and they're constitutional. So now the irony there is that when you know African Americans are overwhelmingly a Democratic constituency, so it's just like literally changing the names, uh, but functionally. The same thing, but it, it's it's where the politics of this get very very tricky um, for Democrats, frankly, because if you want to ensure you have members of color uh, in the Congress, politicians of color in the Congress, an easy way to do that is to pack the black vote into safe districts. Right. But that's to the detriment of the party, because as I just described, by locking up that African American vote, say you're basically handing a whole bunch of districts to Republicans. Yeah. What, the, the, the best thing from the party's perspective is to spread that Democratic vote around very efficiently, as it were. That is contrary to the, to the goal of putting more people of African-American heritage and ethnicity um, uh, in, in the Congress. So those two things cut across purposes. And Republicans, by the way, have played those politics inside the Democratic Party very well. Right. Um, the first bill Democrats introduced into the new Congress in January included a measure to make um, Election Day a public holiday. Um, listeners may not be aware that um, US elections are held on Tuesdays, um, so people have to sort of manage work to be able to vote, for example. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell didn't seem to like this no, idea, he didn't. did he? <laughs> he did not. Um, yeah, so there was a talk about, you know, public servants, you know, having another extra day. Why, why do you think there is just uh, such a hesitancy to allow people to vote? Easier. Well, only from Republicans. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I, I think there's only this is the other thing. There's 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 really only one side of American politics at the moment worried about voter fraud and and the, and the you know Mitch McConnell called it a power grab by Democrats and and coming from a country as we have here in Australia with compulsory turnout, you know, uh, it's kind of bizarre. And and Democrats said, yeah, absolutely, it's a power grab by the people. You know, the idea that making it easier for people to vote um, might upset the other side of politics. It's just bizarre, yeah. um, certainly to Australian ears. And, um, but, but there's a long history of this. Um, um, it, I think it's a, the scholarship actually is it's not all one-way traffic. There are, there are lots of unmobilised Republican voters as well, but there are more unmobilised Democrats votes than there are Democratic votes than there are Republican votes. And, and so net-net, you know, Republicans tend to be resistant to, if not fearful of, anything, uh, legal moves that help to make voting easier. 
Um, Stacey Abrams, who gave the Democratic response to the State of the Union this week, was a gubernatorial candidate for the state of Georgia in a very narrow race during mm-hmm. last year's mm-hmm. midterms. Uh, she's become a strong voting rights advocate following allegations of widespread uh, voter suppression in that state. Let's hear a little bit of that sort of furor over those controversial campaigns. More people have lost the right to vote in the state of Georgia. They've been purged, they've been suppressed, and they've been scared. This is a man who had someone arrested for helping her blind father cast a ballot. He raided the offices of organizations to stop them from registering voters. That type of voter suppression feeds the narrative because voter suppression isn't only about blocking the vote. It's also about creating an atmosphere of fear, making people worry that their votes won't count. While I acknowledge the results of the 2018 election here in Georgia, I did not, and we cannot, accept efforts to undermine our right to vote. We must reject the cynicism that says allowing every eligible vote to be cast and counted is a power grab. The foundation of our moral leadership around the globe is free and fair elections, where voters pick their leaders, not where politicians pick their voters. Simon, the state of Texas is also currently being sued over Mm -hmm. the issue of voter suppression. So the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, there um, uh, believe that uh, an attempt to purge tens of thousands of voters um, was linked to the fact that um, about 87% of Texas's naturalised citizens are black or Latino or Asian um, heritage. Uh, What is it that US politicians seem to fear so much about voters from multicultural backgrounds? That they're Democrats. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Look, this is partisan pure and simple. Um, in presidential elections, um, uh, minorities uh, are voting. Uh, African-Americans vote, you know, at least 95-5, Democrat, Republican, if they vote, yep. if they vote. Uh, Latinos, that's at least 75-25 and maybe even higher. And, and Asian-Americans, it looks like, uh, are a growing group in the United States um, is, is, you know, still a small segment of the electorate, but overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, Again, this is partisan, pure and simple, um, um, that, that letting um, those sorts of constituencies or poor people who, who are itinerant uh, have a tenuous sort of residential situation. Um, that's another group um, that struggles to stay on the roll. Right. And, and what do we know about that group? They're overwhelmingly democratic. And um, yeah, this is something I've done a, actually a fair amount of scholarship on myself and, and um, uh, that constituency, the group that is doesn't have a isn't living in the same house for 20, 25 years, raising their kids there and making sure their name is spelt correctly on their driver's license and, and and all that sort of official contact with the state that that established well-off middle class and above sort of people do. Poorer people, if you're a renter, you're moving around, um, a family breakup. Um, um, all sorts of you know complicated living situations that tend to fall on the, on the poorer third of the population, uh, roughly speaking. All of those things in the United States conspire to sever your connection with the voter registration system, okay. and and th- that constituency, if it were to vote, um, and that requires being registered and being turned out to vote on the day or by mail or whatever it might be, they are disproportionately democratic. And that scares Republican incumbents. What do you think the the big battles over redistricting changes are likely to be before next year's election? Is it certain areas, for example, or is all this dependent on the outcome of sort of Supreme Court sort of cases? A couple of things to say there. Um, 
I am very focused on the Supreme Court at the moment because they are taking up, um, they'll take up the North Carolina case. So I testified successfully. As it turns out, we got affirmative verdicts for plaintiffs in um, in Wisconsin that went on appeal to the Supreme Court and they said the plaintiffs didn't have standing. They really, that's often something the Supreme Court does to not decide the matter at hand. We won in, in the meantime, we won in North Carolina and the Supreme Court said, well, to the judges, does your view of the matter differ now that you've heard what we ruled in Wisconsin? And the judges in North Carolina said, no, it doesn't. And so it's just been, it's been since we won at trial, well over a year ago now, it's been battered back and forth. And now it's going back to the Supreme Court again on appeal. I, I strongly suspect um, with Brett Kavanaugh now on the bench, yeah. replacing Kennedy, um, that um, they will say um, um, partisan gerrymandering. I think they'll go back to the standard. Yes, we think under some circumstances it may be unconstitutional. We're not sure what those we, – we haven't seen enough to determine what those circumstances are yet, which I think is sort of a cop-out and rather breathtaking, but but something where I think the Republicans will land. That's the big ticket item at the moment from where I sit. But that said, comma, at the same time, <laughs> states themselves are taking matters into their own hands. And in 2018, four states passed ballot initiatives essentially – in some cases, explicit constitutional amendments to their state constitutions, um, saying, hey, this practice of, of the politicians themselves controlling the redistricting process, that's gone. And so Arnold Schwarzenegger led a movement for an end to partisan control of election administration right. in California. In, yeah, and he's right. a Republican. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he sat in the front row um, I wasn't there, but in the front row when we had oral argument for the Wisconsin case at oh, the Supreme really? Court, Schwarzenegger came to Washington. Right. He is passionate about this issue. So a lot of states are saying this is poisonous and enough is enough and are essentially either through these grassroots movements, sometimes with a, a, a far-sighted politician showing some leadership, um, passing ballot initiatives, referenda essentially, uh, making it unconstitutional to do this. And slowly, the number of states that still have partisan control of their um, um, redistricting process is slowly going down, okay. but nowhere near fast enough for my... And that's why, ultimately, I think the Supreme Court is still where the action is, because so many big states are still grappling with this. Florida, North Carolina, Michigan... Yeah. You know, um, actually, Michigan passed a law. Uh, is one of the states that uh, took on board uh, redistricting reform, <laughs> but it's still a big deal. Um, another issue that seems to pop up every few years in the United States is um, compulsory voting. Um, I know former colleagues of yours at Stanford last year made the case that um, mandatory for, for mandatory voting um, in an effort to sort of increase turnout for U.S. elections. Do you see that as something that is ever going to be implemented? No. Right. Um, I, 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 as an Australian political scientist in the United States for as long as I was in the United States, yeah. I would get asked about this routinely yeah. by journalists, by whoever. How does it, they're fascinated by it. Yeah. How does it work? And da 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 da. And and one of the things you've got to remind Americans is that compulsory voting in Australia is as much carrot as it is stick. Elections are on a Saturday. Uh, it's easy to complete. You can pre-poll. Yeah, you can, you know, snags it's, it's, and yeah. Sna yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all the, the, the AEC sets up uh, polling booths in the airport. If yeah. it, you know, like it's it, right. all of that. Um, and and moreover, that it 
if you've got a compulsory voting statute on the books, how did it get there? It got there because people, typically both parties, both sides of politics, were encoding a cultural norm. It was already there in the culture that this is sort of something we all should be doing anyway. America is not there. Okay. Right? And it's the land of the free and, and state compulsion for anything has, a, has an uphill battle uh, in, in the United States. Um, um, and I think it'd be, it'd run into a constitutional challenge if one state tried it. I think it'd run flat out into a First Amendment challenge uh, up at the Supreme Court. Simon, we'll leave things there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, Drew, a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review as well. And thanks to Bubba Mara Brass Band, Chris Sabrisky, Lobo Loco and Ketza for their musical contributions this week. And to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.